Um, not having the knowledge is not an excuse when you get in to where we're going. You know, as backcountry hunters, we love the thrill, but you don't, I, trust me, you don't want to be on the other side of that knowing that you could have done better or you could have been better prepared. And now one of your loved ones is really hurt and there's nothing you can do to help them out. Welcome to the Hunt Backcountry Podcast. This is episode number 243, and we are talking about emergency response in the backcountry. Our guest, Jason Fawson, is a pilot who responds to such events, and as you'll hear, he also has personal experience being the caller, the person who needs rescue and aid in the backcountry. We speak with Jason about his professional experience and what it's like to respond to such emergencies and then get the other side of the story, what it was like for him to be the one needing help. So this covers both sides of emergency response in the backcountry. If you think of heading into the backcountry, being in the mountains, and needing assistance, you're hitting that SOS button or something of the sort, we want this episode to help provide you with some information, knowledge, and some level of experience on how best to handle that situation. So we talk about what you should do before hitting the button as well as after hitting the button. Hopefully, this is an issue that none of us need to experience this year or in coming years. But to be honest with you, chances are, at some point, with the number of people listening to this podcast, someone is going to need assistance in the backcountry. And if this show can help even one person, it will certainly be worth it. So don't skip over this topic. As you head into the mountains over the coming months, be prepared have some knowledge, be responsible, and this show can play a small role in helping you do that. Before we dive into the show, I want to thank Scotty88C for the iTunes review. Scotty, send us your shipping address to podcast at exomountaingear.com. We will get some Exo Mountain Gear and Hunt Backcountry Podcast swag headed your way. Listeners, if you want to enter into these giveaways, just leave us your feedback. A review in iTunes would be great. If you use another podcast platform that accepts reviews, that would be wonderful as well. Or you can also contact us directly with your questions, comments, or feedback to podcast at exomountaingear.com. All right, let's dive into this conversation with Jason Fawson. Jason, welcome to the Hunt Back Hunter podcast. Thanks for joining us this morning. Thanks, guys. It's good to chat with you. Yeah. This is uh, an exciting one for me. We've done some listener stories on, you know, hey, I was rescued by a helicopter type thing for whatever reason. Actually, a couple of them. Um, and you have a story like that, but you're also on the other side being uh, part of an air response team, being a pilot. Before we dive into the both sides of that story, let's go ahead and get some like personal introduction background so listeners have context for who you are. Perfect. My name is Jason. I, I am an aeromedical pilot. The, the general term that most people think of across the country is life flight. Um, I fly out of eastern Idaho. We hit a lot of backcountry areas, which is really cool. Being a, being a hunter, I love it. 
Um, married, got a couple of young kids, seven, five, and two. So I feel your guys' pain when you're talking in the podcast about trying to make the time <laughs> to get out and do something. Um, been flying for about 20 years now. Um, Eastern Idaho for eight. Uh, it's, it's, it's amazing. I can't think of a better place in the world to fly than where we get to go. That's cool. How did you become a pilot specifically on the helicopter side? It, it was crazy. I was a construction worker right out of high school. Um, had a really good buddy of mine that got into a bad car wreck and he got flown by life flight in Utah. And when that happened, I, I kind of took a self assessment of what I wanted to do and decided that day that I was going to try and find a flight school. And it's kind of been history from there. Been doing aeromedical for almost 10 years now. Huh. I had a, a really good friend from high school, um, a girl, and she married this gentleman. And he was kind of the same thing. He was doing odds and ends and whatever. And one day he was like, I really want to become a helicopter pilot. And uh, his wife was just like, go for it. And he, it's it's just wild to think of the careers that exist out there. Because when I first was talking to him, I'm like, so what do you want to do, you know, being a helicopter pilot? And he's like, I'm not sure. I just really want to fly a helicopter. I'm like, okay, cool. He ended up flying down south for the oil fields a bunch. So he was like transporting between, um, you know, oil rigs on the sea and then bringing guys back and forth from the mainland. I'm like, I never knew that that was a thing. Like basically a full-time helicopter pilot who just transports for oil. Yeah, it's it's amazing. I did I did a six year stint flying tours over the Grand Canyon off of the South Rim. So I got to spend day in day out looking up four hundred inch bowls in Unit Nine there. Wow, that's not terrible. No, it, it never <laughs> sucked. It's actually how I met my wife. She's from Australia. Really? Yeah, we we jump on a plane in two days to head down there and get away from this this cold. So that's cool. Have you nice. hiked in the canyon? I have. Yeah. I haven't done the rim to rim, but I, I have hiked down. Yeah, it's so cool. It's one of those things that, you know, I I'm careful to say everybody should do this, but when I've been to the Grand Canyon and then I hiked through the Grand Canyon and those two things are so completely different, like just being there versus being in it, that it's pretty amazing. And, and just the the topography changes so much. It's it's literally a mountain upside down, so you go from cold to hot back to cold. It's it's crazy. Yeah, that's cool. Um so yeah, you mentioned you've been flying out of Eastern Idaho for eight years. You mentioned Life Flight. Is that who you fly for? Is do you fly for a private service? I, I do fly for a private service. Life Flight's just a general term that that most people use when they refer to aeromedical hospital or helicopters across the, the country. Mm-hmm. Um, usually, everybody that I ever talk to, they that's the way that they re- recognize what I do as Life Flight. Yeah, got it. So mm-hmm. you. Obviously, you even just mentioned you used to do like basically tourist flying, right? And then now you're on the medical side. Did Are you medically trained in that transition or are you still pretty much strictly just a pilot? Uh, to, to say I'm medically trained would be be a far overcry. Um, I get a lot of a lot of information from the crews that I work with. They're usually pretty good with like working with me for first aid and stuff like that for backcountry stuff. But I am not a certified clinician. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Okay. So... Give us an idea of some of the calls as you respond to. We were chatting before the podcast here. It's everything from backcountry to wilderness stuff to hospital transfers. I mean, it covers a pretty wide range. Um, Especially in the the rural areas. There's there's so many different ailments that people run into. About 60% of the stuff we do is usually hospital to hospital, um, heart attacks, strokes, stuff of, stuff of that sort. But the beauty of eastern Idaho is we, we get to do a lot of what we call hillbilly flying. We get to go back into the backcountry, 
we had to go into a lot of the wilderness areas that you can't take a motorcycle, um, four-wheeler, stuff like that. Uh, some of the flights we get range anywhere from, you know, the, a small leg fracture in the back country to, I flew a guy out that had hemorrhoids that was 20 miles back in on a horse ride and <laughs> that'd be a rough 20 miles out. <laughs> it would have been a rough 20 miles out. So really the only way to get him out was to bring in a helicopter. It was funny. We landed in the camp and asked where the patient was. And they said it was the guy standing over there next to the horse. Oh they didn't gosh. even tell us what they didn't even tell us what we were coming for because they thought we wouldn't come oh so that's part of what i want to get into is i guess from both perspectives like both sides the person who's calling for aid and then you guys as the team responding like i want to understand some of those logistics the back and forth um and really what a response looks like and i know that that probably can change greatly but um, it's important for us to know as hunters and backcountry hunters, um, hopefully we never have to call for help in that manner. But if we do, I think it'd be really helpful to understand some things about how that process works, maybe what to expect, um, what might be helpful to communicate, all those things, you know, finding landing zones, all that stuff. Absolutely. Um, so as we talk about the, the what's called just the hillbilly flying or the backcountry responses, <laughs> First, I guess a question I'm just curious about, say like that response, you, you had no idea you were going in for a hemorrhoid patient, but um, whether you do or don't know what you're going in for, for a backcountry um, response like that, what does a typical response team look like? And does that maybe change if you do know the injury? Um, but you're the pilot. Who else is on board? What type of crew? What type of response is involved? So typically, the way that we operate is we have a nurse and a paramedic on board, and that's that's state law in Idaho. We have to have a paramedic to go do anything that's that's not in our facility. Um, it's just the three of us. It's a pilot. It's a nurse. It's a medic. We're staffed a lot like a fire station. We we have a, a quarters that we live in. We're staffed 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, the goal is to get off the ground within seven to ten minutes from any call that comes up. So we have the helicopters fully stocked, ready to go. A lot of times when we launch on a flight, we don't know exactly what we're going for. Um, we get very basic information. As the pilot, the only pl- the only thing they give me is they give me a location and a, a weight if they think if they have a weight for the person. Um, they don't want to sway the pilot's decision making as to whether the weather is going to allow them to fly or performance by us knowing that it's a two year old versus a sixty year old. Mm. So. We get very basic information on where we're going, and a lot of times, like I said, we'll launch without knowing whether it's hemorrhoids or a bear attack that we're going after. Um, the The main thing that I would that I would preach is preparation. You never think you're going to need a helicopter until y- you need one. Um, having a way to communicate that information, especially in the backcountry, is key. I've had multiple instances where. It's been a father and a son out and dad gets hurt. They have no way to get in touch with any sort of help. And the kid has to leave his dad and ride out for a couple of hours to get phone service to try and make that phone call. I can't think of anything, anything in this world that would feel more helpless than making that ride out to try and get help and having to leave your dad, your hunting partner, your kid something in the back someone in the back country to have to to go out and get help 
So preparation, making sure you have an inReach, a spot, sat phone, some way to ascertain your location, a GPS, having coordinates. That's huge for us. As a pilot, the first thing I ask for is where are they? Um, I put the coordinates into Google Earth, try and figure out exactly how I'm going to get to them. Um, I don't care what's going on with them. I'm just going in to, to try and get them out. So it's really tough when you when you don't have that information because we'll have to come in and start a grid search from the air and just start looking, see if we can find somebody that's waving a red coat at us, which it's, it's kind of hard to do when you're three, 400 feet up off the air and you're looking down into a thick canopy trying to find somebody that's hurt because we never get hurt in a perfect spot, right? Yeah. 100 foot. 100 foot landing zone it's funny along those lines i've uh the last uh, i ordered a, a quilt for sleeping and you could choose the colors and i've always ordered a bright orange uh lining for it because i thought in the event i ever needed to flag an air, a helicopter down I just flip the thing inside out and have this you know five foot by eight foot bright orange fabric would that be pretty significant in helping find uh is that orange going to show up well for you from a helicopter absolutely and it it yeah It'll really show up well if there's if there's a contrast. If you got some bright green grass that you're in instead of uh, dry okay. grass, um, we're looking from usually a football field away, and we're looking straight down on you. Where mm -hmm. it's easy for you to see me, but it's can be really difficult for me to see you. Hmm. So okay. we can go back to the old school smoke signal. Um, you know getting a pretty good fire going. And then as soon as the helicopter shows up, put a, a green branch or something on it. That gives me a lot of information as a pilot. It shows me where you're at and it shows me what the winds are doing down there as well. Hmm. Yeah. I didn't think of the wind factor. That's got to be incredibly helpful for you. A lot of our first aid and um, LZ training in the winter is we, we try to provide smoke bombs to the, um, the EMS outlets and search and rescue outlets that we utilize so that they can just drop a smoke bomb in the snow and we'll put the nose of the helicopter right on the smoke bomb. Huh. This is going to be probably a ridiculously stupid question. I think I probably know the answer, but I'll go for it anyway. Um, your average, call it smoke bomb from like fireworks, just the one inch ball, that's not going to do anything significant to help with it because it's so small. Yeah, it's so small. We usually okay. use it. I was just a, thinking that'd be so cool because they're so light and small and you could just pack one. But I'm like, no, nah, it's not going to help. <laughs> you can get canisters that are that are less than a pound, though. Really? Yeah. Okay. The main thing is to wait until you, the helicopter's overhead to pop that canister because they don't last that long. Yeah, let's, man, there's so many, there's so many things I want to know. Let's go ahead and hit the communication piece. You mentioned inReach, um, Spot, Sat Phone. Most of those folks are probably familiar with. Um, I've used a Spot years and years ago, but for many reasons, I think an inReach is a better choice, um, mainly for two-way communication, not necessarily to do with, you know, calling for a response such as yours, but in your perspective, in those devices or any others that come to mind, is there a preferred one? Um, you know, you yourself are a hunter, whether it's from your experience as a hunter and being in the backcountry or your experience on the response side, are there things to know about the pros and cons of those types of communications devices, maybe which one you would prefer? I run an inReach um, a lot for the same reason that you do for being able to communicate back home. I, I did a hunt up in Canada in 2017 where I rented a, a sat phone and it just, it didn't work as well for me. You have to 
shut it off, save the battery, come back out, try and check your messages, see if anything's going on back home. And you might be a day or two before you find out that, you know, Timmy fell in a well back home or something. So I, I, right after that hunt, I went and bought an inReach. Prior to that, I had a spot beacon, just the standard spot. Mm-hmm. And we used to, we used to do a lot of training and actually give spot beacons to our, our local EMS people. The, the problem I have with that is you don't know when help's coming. You can mm-hmm. hit an SOS on a spot beacon and, and I'm talking the older spot beacons. You can hit an SOS on that and there's no way for you to know if help's coming, when help's coming. Mm-hmm. There's no way for them to know what kind of help you need. Where as far as the inReach goes, I absolutely love that as soon as I hit an SOS, I'm going to get a message from Geos asking what's going on. Mm-hmm. They're going to fill me in on who's coming, when they're coming. I can tell them if I'm a diabetic. I can tell them if I'm losing blood. I can tell them if my truck's broke down. And and be able to communicate with them, communicate with people back home. I actually used my inReach for the first time this year to bring in a helicopter for me and a, a couple of my friends. It was We were out scouting for moose. I drew a, a Shiras tag this year in Idaho. And, you know, a, a good friend of mine and his wife, they asked me if they, if I wanted to go up and ride the unit. I'd never really hunted the unit, so, and I don't have horses. And I was absolutely stoked to go, you know, get boots on the ground, check the area out, try and find some summer bulls. And while I was up there, uh, a sheep herder's pack horse got into ours. And my, my friend's wife came off her horse and she had a really bad accident. She ended up getting trampled by the the pack horse, head injury, ripped her, almost shredded her right arm. We thought she was going to lose her arm. Um, and we had to call in our own team. So he's a medic on my, my flight crew. She's a nurse on my crew and, and me. So we had a full flight crew up there. Oh, wow. We were, we were just south of where my base is. And we had to call in our own flight team to come extract her, and I used my inReach for it. And I can't imagine how how bad that would have went if I didn't have a way to to get somebody coming. We had a helicopter there in 20 minutes. Um, she was at a trauma center within an hour. They saved her arm. Um, <laughs> she she was out of work for almost eight months, but she's back now. It was one of the scariest things I've ever been involved with. And we were, we were fully trained for it. And without the inReach, I'm, I'm not sure how, how it would have turned out. Yeah. Can you give us like a behind the scenes look at, okay, we hit SOS on the inReach. You mentioned Geos and the response and the communication, but like give us just a, some base understanding of SOS's hit. What happens between that and let's say you going ground up from the chopper in terms of how that communication is managed? So what they're going to do with us is Geos has a um, a network of approved search and rescue that they, they that they'll reach out to. So if once they receive an SOS, um, they're going to take the location of that SOS and they're going to reach out to the closest search and rescue available to that that area. Um, luckily for us, where we work really well and close with a lot of the search and rescue here. And as soon as they see how far removed it is from any close access, a lot of times they're going to call us up and, and get us headed that way 
well before they're even scrambled to try and to try and expedite. Um, for the helicopter, we'll we'll just receive a call from our dispatch center that's going to give us a a, a generalist um, request, like what we talked about before. They're going to tell me that they have a spot beacon or an in reach activation. Um, they're going to give me the location of it, and we're going to go in blind, really not knowing what we're dealing with there. Um, luckily, in our situation, I was able to get a text out to the pilot that was on duty that day and let him know that he was coming to help us out and exactly where we were um, and get that information to him. But it's it's still not a perfect system. You 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 can hit it. Um, Geos responded to me immediately asking what was going on. Luckily, we were in a nice open area, so we had line of sight to the, the sky. Um, if you're in a dark canopy, you may have to leave the canopy to get that signal out to the GPS. It has to have an unabated view to the sky to make that, that signal go out. So you still might have to hike out a little bit, but you won't have to go till you get cell service. Um, on the ground, um, I just want to talk about some things we should know, like going back to your point, Steve, about visibility and flagging that type of thing. What are some other helpful things that we should know? Again, hopefully we don't need to know these things. We don't have to get in this instance. But like take, for example, in a location, don't, you know, steep hillside and dark canopy, like you mentioned. There's no way a chopper's getting to your location where you're at. Is it best to stay put? Is it best to on the ground to try and find some sort of landing zone for you guys? Is that something just stay with the quote unquote patient and you guys will land it as close as you can and come to the location? Um, just in terms of those logistics on movement landing, what's some helpful things to know? So to kind of give just a, a little background on, on helicopters, not to get too far into the woods. Um, don't believe anything you see in Hollywood when they're showing stuff on rescues there. Helicopters are amazing tools, but they do have restrictions. And one of the big restrictions where we, where we live, where we hunt, where we chase the, the, the animals that we chase is altitude. Um, just like your lungs, when you're up there hiking at 10,000 feet and you're pushing up over a ridgeline, the helicopter, it suffers from performance issues as well once we get up there. So depending on where you're at, um, you may be too high for a helicopter to come in. Um, you may not you may be in an area that's way too steep on a on the side of a mountain for the helicopter to come in. So typically, as a as a pilot, we're going to find a place that's a hundred foot by a hundred foot minimum to try and put the helicopter. That's about twice the size of the helicopter, and that may change depending on topography. If there's tall ponderosas, um, something of that sort that we're trying to land in, um, and we need about six degrees of slope. To, to put the helicopter six degrees or less. So we're going to be looking for a relatively flat spot to come in and put the, put the aircraft. Um, tall grass can be an issue, tall brush. We don't want to, you know, be cutting the grass with that tail rotor back there. So selecting a site, it's, it's something that it starts on the ground by you guys trying to identify, you know, a relatively flat spot and tramp the grass down if you can to, to try and get the helicopter and then if you have some way to distinguish that spot, we talk about flagging, but typically you're carrying your little orange flagging tape in your backpack. At least that's what I carry. You tie that to a limb. You're not going to be able to see it from 100 yards away while you're moving 60 miles an hour. 
So the best way to do it, like I mentioned earlier, was a, a signal fire. Try and get some sort of big smoke plume that we can see. Um, having somebody standing out in the middle of the clearing waving an orange tarp, like what Steve recommended, is great. Some sort of contrast to point it out. To get into where the if you leave the patient, it's it's totally going to be specific to what's taken place. If the patient's ambulatory, if they've just broken a leg and you can uh, provide some sort of splinting and there's a couple of you that can shoulder him out and carry him down to the LZ, that's typically going to help. But if he can't move, the best bet is to let him lay exactly where he is, um, make sure that he's comfortable, and then find a way to let the helicopter know where you are. As long as we know where you are, we will land and then we'll hike to where you are to try and help get the person out. That uh, six degrees of slope, yeah, that's 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 really flat. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there's not, you're not going to find that in so many places in the mountains. I guess a lot you, of times, I mean, there's got plenty of times you you're two miles away before you can actually land. Yeah, a lot of times we'll land on the top of a ridge line, drop the crew off, and then the pilot's going to relocate to the bottom, uh, uh, so that we can we can hike the patient downhill instead of uphill. Hmm. Um, we'll have we'll have times that we're in the backcountry three or four hours trying to get somebody out to the helicopter uh, and just hope you're not DIY when, when something like that happens. Yeah. You, you think back to the times when we were a little younger and a little dumber. I know that when I first moved to Idaho, I went on an elk hunt all by myself. I had, I had a bow and a 357, and I think somebody knew where I was at going back up into a canyon. And if anything would have happened on, any, uh, on that hunt, I'd still be up there. Yeah. Man, yeah, so much to that. What I'm curious, what about night? Do you guys even fly at night for these backcountry rescues? Are there scenarios where you just you gotta tell these guys, hey, hold on, help's coming, but we can't get to you? At night, we do. Um, the FAA requires that if you're an aeromedical ambulance, that you have a you have to utilize night vision goggles. Now, it's kind of cool. We have three sets, so the pilot and both crew members wears a set of goggles. And man, if you guys are ever in Idaho, Eastern Idaho and you want to see something cool, come by and we'll put you in a dark room and stick those goggles on you. They're amazing. <laughs> it's like sticking a, a set of one power binoculars on the front of your flight helmet, but they amplify given light thousands of times. So if you're in the backcountry and you need help, it's almost better for us to come at night because it's easier to signal us. Um, by signal, uh, don't ever point a laser <laughs> or a flashlight at a helicopter. Um, <laughs> that's a really bad, bad deal to, to, to have to explain to the feds when they come looking for you. Um, but make a big fire and we can see it for from miles away at night. Um, we I've had people hail me with a cell phone. All you have to do is turn your iPhone on and I can see the light through those goggles. It, it's amazing. Mm. Um and depending on the agency you work for, um, some agencies are able to do a little bit more than others. We're able to fly in and land in the back country in the middle of the night with nobody on scene. As long as we have enough celestial illumination like moon, stars, enough bright lights on the helicopter, we can come in and pick you up at night in the middle of the wilderness um, and get you out of there. Hmm. For restrictions, the biggest restriction we deal with is weather. Um, 
we're we're pretty heavily regulated through the FAA as to what kind of weather minimums we have to have to fly in. Um, we have to have three miles of visibility to be able to see. Um, we have to have pretty decent ceilings, especially when we're in the mountains. And by ceilings, I'm talking about cloud layer. Um, especially when we're in the mountains and we're traveling over multiple ridgelines, the ceiling may change just depending on how high the mountain ranges are. So most of the flights that we actually are not able to take are because of weather. Yeah, you mentioned earlier about elevation. What, I mean, can you get up to 10,000 feet, 11,000 yes. feet? I mean, that's, yes, okay. What's, so what's kind of too we did, high? We did a couple of them in the Wind Rivers this last year that were up above 10, 5, 11,000 feet to get people okay. um, And I was listening to a, a, a couple of podcasts earlier where we were talking about pulmonary edema, mountain sickness, you know, people coming from back east, getting out this way. It's a real thing. Um, I threw, I flew three pulmonary edema patients out within a week um, in the middle of the summer last year. For, and, and most of them were from back east that were just coming out to see the mountains. Um, it can be scary. One of them actually ended up being fatal. So um, oh. it, it can get pretty nasty once you get up there at high altitudes. How high is too high is completely dependent on the time of year and how big the person is going up there. Um, when the weather's colder, the air's a lot more dense, which means we have a lot better performance. Um, any of you guys that have ever rode like a two-stroke dirt bike, you'll know that it runs better in the winter than it does in the summer just because you have more air for compression. Same thing with a, with a helicopter. This time of year, they're, they're like a Ferrari. They have all the power in the world. They fly really fast. We could go land. 13, 14,000 feet if we want to. Um, unfortunately, that's not when everybody's up hunting. So in the summer, you know, bow hunting season during early September, when it's still 90 degrees out in some places, it is limited as to how high it can go. And every helicopter is susceptible to it. So we may be landing at the bottom and hiking up to get to you. Um, a 180 pound person is a lot easier to pick up than a 350 pound person. Cause typically when we're landing in the back country, we have to lift up vertically and, and climb a couple of hundred feet in some instances before we're able to actually get good airflow across the rotor disc and get moving forward. So that's when a helicopter as it requires the most amount of power is taken off. Just trying to lift 5,000 plus pounds vertically for a couple hundred feet. Um, so it, it, it is dependent on situation, temperature, a little bit of wind really helps us. So a lot of times that's why we'll land up on the top of a ridgeline because we've got better wind up there than we have down in the bottom. Um, man, we could have a whole podcast just on helicopter ground school. Yeah, that's pretty fascinating stuff. I didn't think about wind being an advantage, but as soon as you said it, it's like, oh, that makes all kinds of sense. As you're getting a lift, it's helping you push and it makes all kinds of sense. How much wind is too wind? That's going to be a... a Dependent on the the pilot, you know. The, yeah. I've I've flown some of the windiest conditions I've ever flown with, in were over the Grand Canyon where I was flying in winds that were 45, 50 mi miles an hour. Um, wind is real. It's wind is like water. So you know, you guys talk a lot about thermals, and it it is true. Depending on where we're landing, if you got that downslope thermal, and you're trying to land down at the bottom of a canyon, and you have that wind pushing down on the helicopter, it just it increases its its workload. Um, so once we get into the higher winds, 25, 30 knots coming over the top of those ridgeline, it'll create turbulence right on the backside of those. 
that's why those bulls and and big old bucks like to sit at about a third of the way down the ridge line because that's where the wind's rolling right back into them the wind coming over the top has a roller right there so depending on where we're landing you may have downdrafts you may have um outflow right there coming out of the canyon that's going to affect the helicopter um completely situational what is um the difference between like an air medical response such as you guys and you mentioned search and rescue separately um how do those two interact cooperate what are some of the differences because they're not the same but it sounds like there can be a coordinated effort and response sometimes absolutely like a lot of the search and rescue stuff you'll see on on tv you got a big helicopter with a hoist coming out of the side of it they're lifting somebody up uh to the helicopter we don't do that as aeromedical operators. We Our helicopters are heavy because we have a lot of medical equipment and stuff on board. Um, those search and rescue hop helicopters are usually stripped down pretty light, and they have one pilot on board, and that's it. So if we're in an area that we just can't land, um, steep canyons, aren't able to get close to somebody, we'll typically call and ask for assistance from a search and rescue helicopter where they'll come in and do what's called a short haul they'll hook a 150 foot line to the bottom of their helicopter, strap on one of their search and rescue, and they'll fly them in and they'll insert them below the helicopter using a, a, a long line. Then they'll go back in and they'll pick that responder and the patient up with the helicopter and bring them to us. Um, that's worst case scenario. They do a lot of stuff where they'll come out and search for people. If somebody's lost, but they don't know if they're hurt, a lot of times you'll get search and rescue to come. We do that as well, where we'll go out and search um, and try and help. We're just not able to do any of the the fun stuff to, you know, strap a line to the bottom of the helicopter. And some of the nurses I fly with, I'd love to hang them from the bottom instead of sit with them <laughs> and, and drop them back into some deep canyon. So it, depending on where you're at, it may be a lot more coordinated effort yeah. to get, get to you and get you out. Um, but there are there are differences between the two, right? Yeah. So it sounds like in terms of insertion and extraction, they have some more capabilities. But when it comes to true medical trauma response, you guys are the heavy hitters there. So sometimes it's a coordinated effort of when you get this person out, but then get them to you guys as soon as possible for that treatment. Exactly. Okay. Cool. What's Sam on the ground? Something's happened, and it's like I was trying to think: is there um, you got the energy you're communicating. Could you um, make the, you know, could I just suggest basically like, hey, this is really steep country. There's no way we're getting this guy out. You need a, a helicopter with a basket or, or a line. Um, you know, what? what's some guidance for that? Absolutely. Just yeah. being able to give the, the, the geo center as much information as you can. Um, they're going to be forwarding everything you say on to search and rescue. Okay. And search and rescue is going to know the local capabilities of, of hey, we're going to need a helicopter with a basket. Depending on where you're at, they may be calling in the National Guard. Um, you guys have a branch of the National Guard over there in Boise mm -hmm. um, where they may be calling in a helicopter from there to come to eastern Idaho to help us out. So it may take a while to, to get that extraction tool, because that, that requires federal approval a lot of times on when they're trying to get the, the National Guard in, if nobody else is available to help. Um, a lot of times with search and rescue, 
they'll they'll mobilize and they'll set up an incident command at a trailhead and they'll wait to hear from us when we're back in there to to see if we need that information. So if you have the inreach, you're able to give the information up front. Um, it's really helpful in cutting down the time. And I can't stress the time enough, Steve. Like you're sitting in the back country, you and Mark, Mark's got a broken leg. You can't get him out. The things that are going to start going through your mind is his good friend of, you know, you're going to start thinking about family. You're going to start thinking about the worst, trying not to panic, trying to get that information to somebody. It it's all going to cut down the time. When I go back to the, the, the horse accident we had this year, we were 20 minutes waiting for a helicopter. I was in full communication with the pilot as they were coming in and I was still terrified knowing what was happening. I've had instances where people have called me and we came in at night and it was just too dark to land and I had to leave and come back at first light to get them. I can't imagine like that feeling as they left or as we left them. Like the helicopter was just there and they flew away. Now what? And with you having that energy in your hand and being able to talk to somebody and they and them to tell you, hey, it's too dark. They're going to come back at first light. At least, you know, mm-hmm. at least you have that communication tool to be able to know why we left and when to expect us back. So you've already mentioned as the pilot, you don't always have full context necessarily before a call. And I'd imagine that you do a transport and get a patient to medical care and then you don't always have the full story afterwards. So I'm like preceding this question with, I realize that as a pilot, you don't always have full context, but are there any stories or calls that come to mind where you have heard of details of a story that are good examples of either this could have been prevented, this could have slash should have been handled differently if someone knew blank like help us as hunters maybe pull from experiences from calls that you've been on of like anything that comes to mind basically on what we should know what we should maybe consider what we should do differently that type of thing is that is that a fair question because i really don't always have the full story a lot of the ones that i shake my head at are the ones that we go out and we search for somebody that's lost um and it's, I'm kind of biased because I try and be as prepared as I can when I go into the back country. And I think we've all had that moment of where am I and trying to, to get the clarity. Um, the one that comes to mind for me was, was an individual out with their, their kids and we got the phone call, um, saying that they, they needed help. They needed to just come look for them. Um, and Unfortunately, the weather was the weather was horrible and it was up in southwestern Montana. So we weren't able to go look and it was a a 40 year old guy with a six year old kid. And we got the call about nine o'clock at night. And it was in December. I don't know what they were up there doing, but it was in December. And so you're you spend the whole night thinking about, you know, there's a six year old kid out there lost in sub zero temperatures. What? what were they doing? What was this guy out there doing? Um, and then we got the call again at six o'clock the next morning that they were still missing and they needed us to come look for them. Um, preparation. I can't preach it enough. I don't know if that kind of goes down the line that you were, you were thinking Mark, but you know, just making sure that you have a way to get help is, is a big one for me. I've had 
I was telling you guys before we before we got on the call about a one we did not too long ago where a guy got punched in the face by a moose. Um, a couple guys out trying to haze a moose off. Um, make sure that you <laughs> you know what those things are capable of. I think everybody's heard of a story about a moose tree and somebody for a couple of hours. Um, we get a lot of calls every year for animal attacks. We had two of them out of Yellowstone last year for somebody that got attacked by a cow elk. Um, you know, making sure that you're, you're avoiding those animals at all costs unless you know what you're doing with them. I've always uh, maybe been <clears throat> biased from personal experiences of some of the mistakes I've made as a hunter, but I've always thought that one of the most dangerous times in a hunt is when the hunt is quote-unquote over, meaning you fill the tag. And that's either breaking down that game with a knife in hand and or, you know, coming out with heavy loads, potentially, you know, super steep country, potentially night, that type of thing. Like to me, when a tag's filled, that's when the danger begins in a lot of ways. Would you like from your experience of calls and hearing stories, would you agree that that's the case or for hunting accidents specifically, do you see something else as the higher danger? As far as hunting itself goes, you're, you're absolutely right. I could tell a story about mine this year um, where I, I, I mentioned earlier I drew a moose tag. Luckily for me, I, I was able to fill the tag um, in mid-November. And when I got it, I was, I was DIY. I was up there by myself. I was about 10 miles in from my truck um, when I knocked him down. And walking up to an animal like that, you're you're kind of nervous when you're first walking up. Even though, you know, I I didn't shoot him with a bow. I shot him with a rifle. I knew that I'd hit him pretty good. I knew that he was probably dead. And I, I still waited 30 minutes before I got over to him. But walking up to him, like, it's daunting knowing that that critter can get up and, and give, you, give you a pretty good run for your money in a quick hurry. Um, after the customary photos and getting everything ready to go, you, you come to the task of trying to break something like that down by yourself, you know, thousand plus pound animal laying there. As I was taking off his first, his front leg, um, I was reaching underneath to, to separate the hide from it. And I just barely touched my wrist with my, with my brand new knife. Didn't think anything of it until I looked and I'd actually nicked my radial artery and there was just blood like pumping out, um, pretty quick. Um, luckily I worked with some really cool people and they'd done a lot of first aid training with me. I was able to get a good pressure wrap on it and kind of stop the bleeding. But there for about a five to 10 minute period, I was standing with my inReach in hand, ready to, ready to hit that SOS button just in case I needed help. Um, but that could have turned into a really bad situation. My, my wife told me she's buying me chain mail gloves for next year <laughs> just to make sure that I don't, that I don't do it. Yeah. It's funny. It's one I used to use a Havilon, and one of the reasons I stopped was like these things are so sharp, a brand new blade, uh, that it's dangerous. Like we, you know, there's a couple times, multiple times, you just nicked your, took the tiniest little nick, and all of a sudden, bam, you got a big old chunk of flesh hanging off. And while it's great cutting up an animal, it was like legitimate, um, just scary you know, sharp, just dangerous. Yeah, scary sharp. Yeah, and that one that one could have went bad really really quick. Luckily, I just nicked it. I didn't cut it completely, um, but it, it it was scary. And we get we get stuff like that. I've I've flown people that have you know slipped while they were cutting up an elk and stabbed themselves in the leg, and mm. that femoral artery artery will bleed out pretty quick. 
it was interesting. I, I follow a, a DIY page on Facebook and I posted kind of my story about, you know, that Nick in my hand just to see if anybody else had ever experienced something like that to convince my wife that I wasn't incompetent. And <laughs> some of the stories I was getting back, you know, one guy had he'd walked up on a mountain goat and the goat wasn't dead and stood up and gored him right through the leg. Oh, um, another guy tripped and had his broadhead hit his sternum. Luckily, he, it didn't go through his sternum oh or it a stab right in the chest. Like there's some, you know, we're, we're all susceptible to it, especially as we get fatigued. When you're out there breaking down an animal, if you're doing it by yourself, breaking down just a, a mule deer can get pretty, pretty exhaustive. And that's usually when you're going to hurt yourself. Yeah. Wow. Man, I got to hear more about that hunt. <laughs> Man, 10, mi- was, 10 miles solo for moose. It was it was epic. Like we hunted, I hunted my butt off. Like I when I drew the moose tag, um I was stoked. I thought that it was going to be just, you know, kind of a cut and a dr- uh, uh, kind of a slam dunk. My 7-year-old was stoked that he was going to get to go call in a moose for dad, was going to kill it with my bow. And it it wasn't that way. Man, I I hunted, I hunted hard. I think I spent 20 days up in the hills and luckily my schedule allows for it i work a week and then i'm off a week so i was able to get up there in the middle of the week no hunting pressure and i was seeing bulls every day um just not kind of the caliber of what i wanted to <laughs> it's funny the first day that we went hunting i waited until um the first part of october because i didn't want to get up there when everybody was up chasing elk uh, in september and knocking a moose down in september would be tough to try and get that thing out before it was wasted so the very first day I had my brother and his friends come up from Utah because they, they wanted to go on a moose hunt. We, we did something pretty easy. We just took the four wheelers up from camp, got up into a little bit of a rut fest, um, stepped off the four wheeler. And five minutes after we were there, I turned to grab my spotting scope and there's a, a 40 inch bull standing 60 yards away, right in the middle of the trail, right behind us. Um, but he was just kind of a willow horned. He only had a single brow. I, I'd kind of set the goal that I wanted at least a double brow for yeah, I only get one shot at it in Idaho. <laughs> and I don't think my brother's talked to me yet. It was, it was pretty amazing. Um, but I was kind of selfish. I didn't want the hunt to be over that quick. Mm-hmm. It was, it was just such a cool, cool experience. So we hunted pretty hard all of October. Um, started to feel the the pressure in November a little bit. Just, you know, you have that once in a lifetime tag in your pocket and you, you, you kind of feel it weighing on you pretty heavy. Mm-hmm. So we went in a couple of weeks before I actually got my bowl and we found a group of them, you know, back up in at 9,000 feet, which was crazy to think like most of the time you're thinking about hunting moose, you're thinking about you're shooting them in the willows down on the river and I seen bulls everywhere from 5,000 feet to 10,000 feet. Like Shiras are a hard, a hard one to, to figure out sometimes. So I, we found him and we were trying to make a plan on him and a, a snowstorm moved in on top of us. He was across the canyon from us. We, we started a fire, kind of sat there for a little bit, a couple hours trying to see if the snow would lift. And the four-wheelers had about eight inches of snow on them. By that point, we decided it was probably best to get off the mountain. Um, and then I had to go back to work the next day. And luckily, I get to fly a helicopter for work. And I had a chance to fly over the, the area. 
on a, on our way back from a flight. And lo and behold, they were right in the same spot that we'd seen them, you know, a couple of days before. So I didn't have, I didn't have a chance to get out for about 10 days after that. Um, the, the first chance I got, I jumped on the four wheeler road back up in and the four wheeler ride was about, it was about eight miles from the truck to get up to where the four wheeler trail ended. And then it was a two mile hike back into, to get to where they were at and found them. There was eight bulls in one, in one big basin and had a good chance to look them over. Um, pick the one that I wanted. I ended up killing a triple brow that was 40 inches. Nice. And at that point I'd put the bow away. It, it was go time. So I had the 300 ultra ready to rock and roll. Um, which was good because I had to make a Canyon wall to Canyon wall shot on them. There was no getting any closer to them. I was in knee deep snow and where I was at, I'd, I have a good buddy over here that, um, he owns a llama company and I got all set up. I had about a 500 yard shot on him and I called my buddy before I even made the shot. Luckily I had cell service and asked him if he was available that day to come help me out. <laughs> I'm like, Hey, I got a bull bedded. Um, you know, are you, are you available? And he's like, yeah, I'm available. I was like, I'll give you a call back in a couple minutes. I hung up the phone, turned the camera on, laid down, put two in him. He didn't, he didn't move from his bed. And then after the, the, the nerves kind of calmed back down and I could talk again, I called old bull back and <laughs> told him I needed his help. <laughs> <laughs> That's a riot, man. <laughs> so I shot him about 10 in the morning. And it took me a half hour or so to get over to him. I had to hike around the canyon, got to him. And then, man, I'm sure you guys have broke down an elk solo before, and it's it's a lot of work, but that thing was crazy. I started working on him about 11 o'clock, and the llamas showed up at 6.30 that night. Wow. And I, I had barely got him boned out. Really? I had a, my, I called one of my buddies right after I shot him and he showed up there at about four o'clock and helped me finish it out. But just rolling him, you know, that he was Mm -hmm. a thousand pounds easy by the time I got the one side off and then tried to roll him. I'm just glad he was on a, he was on an incline. So I had to roll him downhill, but it was, it was pretty insane. Um, I've always, I've always been into moose. Like I, I even went on a outfitted moose hunt in 2017 paid all this money to go to canada and then didn't see a moose in 10 days wow didn't see a single moose didn't see a single moose so it was kind of my kryptonite and luckily the way that we have it here in idaho you know i'm only 39 and i was able to draw a moose tag which that's kind of unheard of around most of the most of the western u.s so yeah and gotta gotta take care of that and which is good because i'm taking my old man on a hunt back up to canada this year to he's getting a little older and his bucket list has always been a moose so go mm. try another one wow was it uh tough to go on the moose hunt and not even not even have a chance to even see a moose like how did you feel coming out of that mental oh, my man like it was a 10-day hunt so the first couple of days you're like this is this is just the way that it goes yeah. It was a wilderness hunt, so we went up into to northern Alberta, and the the outfitter flew us back into this uh, via helicopter to to a camp that they hadn't hunted for years. Um, so we were pretty we were pretty excited that we were gonna be able to 
to get into some big moose. And the first day, we're talking late September, the first day it was 95 degrees. Oh, my goodness. And it was 2017. If you guys remember back here, there was a blizzard. It was Mm -hmm. dropping a foot of snow in the mountains here, and it was 90 degrees in northern Alberta. And it it, it stayed that way almost the entire hunt. The animals were all nocturnal. We'd come out and find new sign where they'd been moving all night, but it was so hot and dry. You couldn't have snuck up on a dead one through some of the the timber falls up there and they just weren't moving during the day nothing on the outfitter it was just it was horrible horrible circumstances and it's daunting you know you think about that kind of money that you spend to go on a hunt like that and then you don't even don't even see an animal but my old man ended up getting to knock down a bear which was kind of cool it was actually breaking into our cabin um and he got a he got to shoot it just outside of camp um, but it was kind of a crazy, crazy hunt, but you know, the memories will, will be there forever. I, I don't have any animosity about not getting one. The hunt was awesome. Yeah. Hmm. Wow. Hey, jumping back. I mean, uh, that was such a good quote unquote detour talking about moose hunting. I love it. Just jumping back to the rescue stuff. One topic that came to mind, I want to make sure we hit, um, is just, talking through cost a little bit and I know that that can be an unknown um but from your experience what you know a few different thoughts one is you know like Garmin inReach for example they have these insurance plans um I know for many folks in many uh, more rural areas there's life flight you know type plans that type of thing um what do you know about those different options and costs in general if someone doesn't have a specific, call it like emergency response um, insurance type plan as it relates to a rescue such as these? So most of the like the company specific plans that you're talking about, um, they're kind of a membership where if you if you buy in, it's an annual purchase, you buy the membership um, they're going to cover your out of pocket expense. So they're still going to bill your insurance for any sort of medical flight that you, you take. Um, a lot of times your insurance is still going to hit you for your full deductible. So depending on what you, what you have, um, high insurance deductibles, you know, it's, it still might cost you, cost you a little bit of money. Um, but as far the the best recommendation I can make is if you're traveling, especially from the Midwest back East coming up this way, um, is to get travelers insurance. Um, Garmin inReach's insurance is really good to help out with the the medical evacuation and stuff of that sort. Um, anytime that I travel on a hunt, I book traveler's insurance for it. It mm-hmm. it provides sometimes up to a half a million dollars to give you peace of mind where you may get flown out by a helicopter and then you may need some sort of major surgery and you want them to fly you back to Minnesota to do the surgery while you're at home. It'll cover that transport as well. Um, the, the typical cost for something is going to vary exponentially on where you're at. Um, typically they charge by the mile of how far they're going to fly, just like an ambulance does. Um, and depending on how rural you are, that can be, you know, a hundred miles or so that they're taking you to, to get to the closest hospital. Um, good travelers insurance or the, the inReach plan is is crucial though to help out in that situation just the planning ahead where do you i haven't heard of haven't heard of the traveler's insurance what's that cost so, here? what's that process look like 
Well, we just we just booked a trip to Australia. We're headed down there in a couple of days, and we we insured that whole that whole trip um, for two hundred and forty seven dollars, and that's for five of us. It provides medical evacuation. Like if we if we have something happen while we're down there, it'll pay to fly us home. Um, you know, if the worst happens and and some somebody has a a fatal accident down there, they'll bring the body back home. Stuff of that sort. You know, the things that we don't like to think about. Um, you can just Google travel insurance and, and, and look through, um, some of them have restrictions on the type of activities that they, they provide insurance on. Um, so make sure that you're reading the plan, uh, as an example, some don't allow you to go skiing or something like something in the back country may, may not be covered. So make sure you're doing your homework on the plan, but it, we flew a guy a couple of weeks ago that he was telling us about his traveler's insurance plan. And he, as soon as we got him to um, the hospital, he was already arranging to have a, a jet come get him and fly him home for surgery. It's good. Good to know. Um, man, thank you so much for sharing the time, the stories, the experience. Uh, it's one of those topics that, you know, I've said it a few times already. Hopefully we don't need this information, but uh Given the size of our audience, given the types of activities uh, that these guys are undertaking, um, it's probably likely for someone out there. So if this can help even one person, um, then it's certainly worth the time for sure. Absolutely. And I, I would just say do your research on where you're going. Um, make sure you know what the capabilities of the area that you're going are. Um, we love to hunt rural areas, and a lot of times those, those small hospitals – they don't have a whole lot that they can do. And you may show up and say you're short of breath. And the first thing they're doing is calling a helicopter because they think you're having a heart attack. Um, there's so many things in the back country that, that you'll see me in my flight suit show up for just cause it's not life and death right now, but it can be in a quick hurry. Um, just being prepared, take some sort of basic first aid, if you go to your local fire station and just tell them that you want, you know, some basic first aid, they usually have paramedics or EMTs there and just tell them what you're doing. Hey, I'm, I'm a backcountry hunter. I want to know how to put a tourniquet on. I want to know how to do a pressure dressing. Um, most hospitals you go to, they'll have some sort of EMS liaison that you can talk to about some sort of training, take a basic EMT class. Um, not having the knowledge is not an excuse when you get in to where we're going, you know, as backcountry hunters, we love the thrill, but you don't, I trust me, you don't want to be on the other side of that, knowing that you could have done better or you could have been better prepared. And now one of your loved ones is really hurt and there's nothing you can do to help them out. Sorry for the doom and gloom. No, yeah. man, it's, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's gotta be something we talk about for sure. No, I appreciate it. Yeah absolutely guys well there you have it guys obviously an important topic uh one that's both required and hopefully not required if that makes sense as always we appreciate you guys tuning in we appreciate the feedback and support as we take off uh into hunts over the coming weeks and months here would love to hear from you guys about your trips your adventures your stories your successes your lessons learned Shoot us an email anytime to podcast at exomountaingear.com. We'll talk to you soon.